Colossians 1. Let me begin with a diagnostic question for you to tuck away. What do you want in a church? Which programs, perhaps? Maybe the programs are, are what come to mind. What do you want in a church? Perhaps a certain kind of music is what comes to mind, or a certain style, or a certain volume. Maybe it's a certain kind of pastor, or a certain kind of sermon, or certain kind of people who are like you. What do you want in a church? Do our wants in a church reflect more about Scripture or more about us, more about our culture? And hence, our wants in a church probably also reflect how we pray for a church. If, if our wants in a church reflect more about us and more about our culture, we will pray light and trivial things for that church, if we pray for that church. The content and aims of our prayers for the church should reflect God's purposes and his ways and wants for his church. And the same goes for the individuals in those churches, not just praying for the church corporately. What do we want for our brothers and sisters? Fill in the blank. Let it come to mind. What do you want for so-and-so? What would you want for them? And, And how do you pray for people? And do our prayers reflect God's priorities or our own? They reflect the right priorities. We saw last week as Paul begins this letter to the Colossians, he tells them how he's been praying for them. And he starts off with a great list of things to be thankful for. He thanks God for their faith and for their gospel growth and their love for each other. This week we're going to look at verses 9 to 14 of Colossians 1 and they show us what Paul prays, what he asks God for. Last week was what he thanked God for, for the Colossians. This week is what he asks God for, for the Colossians. So, look at Colossians 1, and we'll start at verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, remember Paul prays similarly in Ephesians 1, and then here in Colossians 1, which we're seeing, of course, Philippians 1, one book before. Two books later, you got 2 Thessalonians 1. You have 2 Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul begins so many letters with a prayer for that church. And by giving us this prayer, he's giving us a model of something of how we should pray and what we should pray for. You see, they not only tell us what Paul wants, but because they're in Scripture, right? Because God gave us these prayers, through there is a model. They tell us what God wants. They don't represent the sum total of praying so that, you know, we would make this tight rule. If you can't find it in one of Paul's prayers, don't pray it. We don't say that. But Paul's prayers should be instructive, right? They should be formative. They should heavily influence us. 
we're probably out of whack somewhere, somehow, if Paul's prayers don't resemble any of our own. Or if his general aims and priorities are never ours. So what are those priorities? What are those aims? What is Paul's prayer here for the Colossians model for us? Well, five things. The first is that we should pray frequently. Pray frequently. The beginning of verse 9, we have not ceased to pray for you. What does he mean? We've not ceased to pray for you. Really? Unceasing prayer? Well, Paul doesn't mean that he prayed constantly for the Colossians like he prayed for no one else and like he did nothing else but pray. He also doesn't just mean that he had some sort of vague, mystical spirit of prayer that he maintained consistently and constantly. He means that he prayed for them regularly. He prayed for them consistently. He prayed for the Colossians routinely. It'd be like me saying to one of my kids, I haven't ceased to pray for you since before you were born. Now they might say, really dad? Even even when you're working on the table saw, you're praying for us? And I would say, no, then I'm concentrating on the blade and the wood and, and making sure I don't get cut. I'm not praying conscious prayers of thanks and petition for my kids as I'm working on a table saw. But I can say to them, there's never been a season where I haven't been praying for you. I can say I've never stopped praying for you in one sense. We need that kind of regular prayer for each other. And we need that kind of regular prayer for each other because we have regular needs. We have constant needs. We have routine needs. We have needs we don't even know about. We need extra strength and grace and patience and wisdom for a million things that are coming up we don't even know. We need to constantly be praying for each other, regularly praying for each other. But the goal isn't just mere frequency, and the goal isn't just mere length. Sometimes we think that the goal is simply to pray more. Sometimes we assess spiritual growth based on the number of minutes In our praying. Well, that may be some indicator of our growth. It may just be a better indicator of our overall discipline. You know, someone who's not a Christian could discipline themselves to pray 30 minutes, 60 minutes a day. It doesn't necessarily mean anything about their heart. We need to pray not just long prayers, not just frequent, regular, routine prayers, for others, but we need to pray the right prayers. Jesus warned us, Matthew 6, he said, don't heap up empty phrases in your praying like the Gentiles do. They think they will be heard by their many words. Our prayers are not heard because of our many words. In fact, long prayers are good only when they're biblically informed, when they're right prayers, when they tap into God's wants and his purposes. So perhaps we should work on what to pray for and why to pray it, how to think about prayer first and foremost, and then see how long we can go. We pray regular prayers, right prayers, and we pray for specific things. Paul prays, for some specific things here for their Christian growth. Now, don't forget what we saw last week, that there's much to give thanks to God for, for his work of grace and fruit in others. 
They, these Colossians, were doing good and their faith was being talked about and their love for each other was growing. And what we see this week is that if we put that together, last week and this week, it's that Paul's thankfulness doesn't stop at thankfulness. It goes beyond and he prays for more. His reason to give thanks for the Colossians launches him into asking God for more and more and more. Now, I don't think we normally pray that way. If things are good for this or that person, we often don't pray for them. Or if we do pray for them, we pray with thanksgiving that things are good and that thing happened or that thing went away that was bad. And then we stop. What we see today from Paul is that his thankfulness is a springboard into lofty requests for God to do more and more and more. We'll come back to that. Now some specifics. He says pray frequently. Secondly, Paul shows us to pray for understanding. The end of verse 9 is this phrase. Filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What does he mean when he prays that they would know his will? I think he means here that specific will will called the revealed will of God or what scripture tells us about what God wants. He's not talking about a mysterious, secret, personal will for my life about what job to take and what city to live in and what car to drive and, and what girl to date. Instead, I think what Paul's talking about here is That the Colossians need to give attention to the word in their lives. And that they would know the will of God as revealed in the scriptures. It's related to what he says in verse 10. That phrase, increasing in the knowledge of God. It's knowing what God wants. Knowing who God is. And then learning how to apply it. He says he's praying for their spiritual wisdom and understanding. How to apply the revealed will of God, how to live it out. Now, Again, last week we talked about thankfulness for God's spiritual blessings in others, and I encouraged us to, to take a measure of optimism to heart in how we view others. I was talking with another pastor this week. A lot of times pastors get together and Compare notes on sermons. What have you been preaching on? And you maybe give a three-minute version of last week's sermon. So I was doing that with another pastor friend in town. And I was telling him last week, we talked about the need to be more optimistic and look for reasons to give thanks to others. And I used the word picture of a strainer. Like you'd strain pasta. So I said what I was trying to get across, even though I didn't talk about any strainer, is this issue. What gets caught in the strainer of our attention? What passes through the strainer of our attention? What do we latch on to and then focus on? Some of us have a strainer that lets everything go that isn't concerning, that isn't wrong. So we listen to people talk in our community group or with another Christian over coffee and If you're like me, this is what tends to happen. It's green light, green light, okay, okay, pass, pass, pass. Ah, Oh, attention. Well, hold on, we've got something wrong here. Something got caught in the strainer. It's something wrong. It's falsehood, it's error, it's misappropriation of God's promises. It's wrong thinking here, and we, we look to address that. So I said to my friend, as I was talking to him this last week, 
That instead we should have a kind of strainer that's flipped around and does the opposite. And we should have a kind of strainer that catches every opportunity to give thanks. Love covers a multitude of sins. Let some sins slide through the strainer and clap onto those things that we can rejoice in and praise God for. But right after I said that, I realized I was being reactionary. That we don't need just the flip of that strainer. The flip of that strainer creates its own problems. A totally opposite kind of strainer is one where everything goes through, including all kinds of bad thinking, all kinds of bad doctrine, even sin, waywardness, and selfishness. All of a sudden now we're not doing a lot of other Bible commands. So we need both kinds of strainers. You see, it's possible to be so optimistic that you're naive. It's possible to be so encouraging that you've encouraged evil and wrong thinking. Paul's encouraging one kind of strainer in the earlier verses, which we looked at last week, those verses on thankfulness. He's encouraging, though, another kind of strainer, we could say, in verses 9 and following, especially verse 9, where he says that they need to know God's will and have spiritual wisdom and understanding. And don't forget why he wrote the book in the first place. He addresses it in Colossians 2. There's a falsehood, a body of falsehood, a body of false teaching that's going around that city, and and it's nasty, and it's troublesome, it's problematic, and you need to discern that it's wrong, that it's not the true thing, it's not what you first held on to in Christ. So here's my takeaway with this whole mental picture of two kinds of strainers. I guess if I was a better preacher, I'd have two strainers up here right now, and I'd hold them up, so... But you can imagine that, right? Okay. Here's my takeaway with this mental picture of two kinds of strainers, one of which catches error that needs to be talked about, needs to be addressed, needs to be encouraged out of. Another strainer which catches opportunities for thanks and praise and rejoicing. We each should know which one of those strainers is more natural to us. Which one we use more naturally? Which one we were born with? I was born with the one that catches falsehood. Criticism is my spiritual gift. (laughs) It seems. In my worst of days, that's definitely what it seems. Well, we should work hard to keep the other strainer, whichever one we don't, we weren't born with, it isn't natural to us. Keep that out and in our hand and using it constantly and we should also thank God for those who are more natural with the other strainer because that's the body of Christ we weren't we weren't all made the same if everyone was as discerning as you there might be more falsehood and trouble in the church and that kind of life and love wouldn't survive in a you know a sea of falsehood but if everyone were as doctrinally picky as you this wouldn't be a body of love and care and encouragement. We need both. Thank God for both. Third, Paul teaches us to pray for fruit. Verse 10, he gives four phrases here about fruit. He says, I pray you'd walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing 
in the knowledge of God. Big things to pray for. It reminds us that all true Christians will bear fruit. They will. Remember, Jesus in Matthew 13 gave us the parable of the four soils. It's a a picture of conversion and false conversion, right? Some people look like they've received the gospel, but then it didn't stick. It wasn't real. Well, those are the second and third soils if you go to Matthew 13 and look at those. The fourth soil is the real one. And there Jesus says that soil sprung up and it bore fruit. Some, here's a key part, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. In other words, not every Christian has the same amount of fruit. Maybe specializes in the same kind of fruit. We're not all the same. It's different. But every Christian bears fruit. Every tree that's truly planted in the soil of Christ is supposed to bear fruit. Last week we talked about gospel fruit. The gospel, if it's truly the gospel in our hearts, it's supposed to bear fruit. It's supposed to spread. But we're also perhaps good to remember Philippians 2, which tells us that this is mysteriously both the work of God and the work of our own. It's a gift of God, and it's our responsibility. Philippians 2, verse 12, tells us, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. That's a job you have. That's a duty you're given. You have to. You should. You you will. You must. You must decide to do it, and you must work to do it. But the next verse, verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you to will and do of his good pleasure. You read those two verses and you think, well, which one is it, Paul? Is it me or is it him? And he says, yep, it is. It's both. You both have to do it, right? If, if it's your effort and none of his working, then unless the Lord builds the tower, those who labor, labor in vain. But, but he doesn't work in such a way that it, you know, we just get strong. You know, there's no means at work here. No Bible reading, no prayer. We just grow naturally, rather miraculously, through his working in our hearts and minds. No, he doesn't work that way, according to Philippians 2. It's, it's his work, and it's our responsibility. And if it's his work, we need to be in prayer more than we are for each other. We need to ask God to do powerful things in each other. Now, we tend to pray for people to become Christians, right? You have a friend you're talking to about the gospel. He's starting to see it. He's not quite there yet. Pray for him. Okay, he goes on the list. And we tend to pray for Christians who are in trouble. They're hurting. They're suffering. Here's a problem. Here's a specific request. We're praying that this would happen, that that would go away. Okay, put them on the list. But if someone's doing well, we tend to think, there's really nothing to pray for. We tend to move them off the prayer request page when they get saved or when the trial stops. Paul says that we're missing something, though. Now, look at Paul's prayers. What have we seen last week and this week? More than anything else, his prayers are thankfulness for God's spiritual work in these people. And then secondly, this week, asking God to give more and more and more of it. Now, praying for needs is a good thing. 
Asking God that this thing would go away is certainly something we can ask. We pray not knowing his will, so we we pray, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But we can ask. We can ask anything in his name. But also we need to work hard for the spiritual things that are there in the midst of all the heartache and hardness. And we don't stop at thankfulness for that. Paul doesn't. He didn't stop at thankfulness, but his thankfulness becomes, again, a springboard to ask God for more and more and more. Again, we don't pray this way, at least as I frequently hear myself pray and others. It's like the business book or leadership book. I haven't read it, but I've seen the title. From Good to Great. That's how Paul prays. You're good? Let me pray for great. No, we don't. We say, you're good? Okay, good. (laughs) Paul says, you're good. Now let's take it to the nth degree. He not only prays for fruit for these Colossians, he prays for ridiculous fruit. Look at it. Walk worthy of the Lord. Paul, come on. (laughs) Dial it down a bit here. You're surely asking too much here. Fully pleasing him? Paul, are you sure you got your theology right? That's not going to happen till heaven. You're asking a glorification question essentially here, right? Not just a growth question, not a sanctification issue. Bearing fruit in every good work? Every single thing being a product of gospel grace in our lives? Man. Paul asks for more for these Colossians and almost absurdly more. He does it elsewhere. Perhaps most well-known is Ephesians 3 where he prays for the Ephesians to know the what? The height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of God's love. Just that. That's all I'm asking for, God, is that they know the sum total and complete fullness of your love. Well, that's a lofty prayer. It's a prayer that will truly and completely only be answered in heaven. Do you see that? When Paul prays they they really walk worthy of the Lord and they really fully please him and they bear fruit in every good work, you say, Paul, when's that going to get answered? I think his answer would be, it'll get slowly answered in degrees here and now and ultimately in the new heaven and the new earth. But it is promised, and that's why I pray it. And that's why I boldly pray it. Now get this. He's content in his circumstances, and yet so very restless to have more of Christ. Here he is in jail. Many Christians have turned against him. Even within the church, they have they, they've falsely accused him. They've said this or that about Paul. They've turned away. He isn't thinking about those as he writes at least this first chapter of Colossians. He's content in his circumstances, hard, difficult circumstances. He talks about his contentment in Philippians 4, if you want to read more about that there. But yet he's so very restless to have more of Christ. It's almost like you could call Paul a spiritual glutton. Isn't that a good word picture? 
I mean, he's just scarfing the spiritual food down. It's never enough. I'm never full enough. Give me more. Give me more. What do you got? Give me more. Now, I think we're often the opposite of Paul's model. I think too often we are content with what we have in Christ. That's good. It's settled. No worries there. But we're so very restless to have something more for our circumstances. Paul's model is contentment in circumstances even when they're hard and restlessness for more of Christ. We should pray such unblushingly bold prayers like Paul. Fourth, we should pray for strength. Strength. Verse 11. Two phrases there. Strengthen with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. He says praying for power. What does he mean? Praying for power. Well, Paul said that he wanted this too. In Philippians 3, verse 10, he just gives this exclamation. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Again, one of those bold prayers. Almost like take your breath away kind of prayers. Did you just pray you want to know the power of the resurrection? It seems like he went too far, doesn't it? It's okay to say it. Because we said seems. It seems like he went too far. I'll say it if you won't. Now what does he want? That's the question. Well, D.A. Carson has a good comment on this. He has a little book on Philippians that's well worth your time. He says about this power of the resurrection that Paul speaks of in Philippians 3. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is at work in us to make us holy. To make us a fit place for Jesus to dwell. To enable us to grasp the limitless dimensions of God's love for us. To strengthen us so that we might have great endurance and faith and lives constantly characterized by thanksgiving. Get this, he says, it takes extraordinary power to change us to become like that. In fact, it takes nothing less than the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. What the apostle wants, what Paul wants then, is not power so that he might be thought powerful, but power so that he might be conformed to the will of God. Only the power that brought Jesus back from the dead will do. Oh, I want that kind of power. I need to pray for it a million times more than I do. We need endurance. Paul prays for endurance for them. Seems like maybe an ordinary or simple thing to pray for after praying such a lofty thing for power. Praying that you endure? If you said to a friend, how are you today? And they said, enduring. You'd suspect it's not a good day. They're just getting by. Well, let's not miss the fact that getting by is pretty important in the Christian life. Getting through that trial, still confessing Christ, is pretty important. Paul prays for their endurance. He prays for endurance in the Christian life. You say, well, wait a minute. You're saying Christians can lose their salvation? No, we don't believe that here. But we believe that there is a responsibility for Christians to keep persevering, keep believing, keep repenting of their sins. And hence, we should pray for those things. We should pursue those things ourselves 
encourage them and others, and pray for them in the church. Paul's praying for their endurance in the Christian life and in that specific kind of trial that they might go through here or there. Trial is part of the equation here because he prays for patience. Now, the word for patience here is more literally translated long-suffering. Long-suffering. Suffer long. The patience Paul means here is a kind of patience in the midst of suffering. Now, when I was in high school, our pastor would frequently comment that you shouldn't pray for patience because you'll get trials. You heard that before? Where'd that come from? I know where it didn't come from. Paul. Because Paul prays for patience. He prays for the Colossians to have patience. And I don't suspect that the Colossians got this letter and they're reading along and, and I pray for your patience. They went, oh, great. Thanks a lot, Paul. Everyone knows that produces trials. Now, yeah, I know why we say something like that. James 1.5, trials produce patience. It doesn't mean, though, every time God is going to put patience in us, he's always going to use or only going to use trials. And it certainly doesn't mean that Christians should treat suffering like they don't go near it with a 10-foot pole. I mean, we bought into this thing, this Christian faith, that's absolutely littered with suffering. Our Savior suffered. He said to us, do you think you're greater than the master? They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. He said, in this world you will have tribulation. Paul said, everyone who lives godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It will be hard. We will have suffering. We will have trials. And we need patience for those trials, not just, not just having patience as a gift after the trials. Right? You need patience in the midst of trials. Pray for patience. Be bold enough to pray for patience. And let's take that off our, our joke list. Now, don't pray for patience. Ah, good Christian joke, right? Let's take that off the joke list. And instead, let's take serious the need to have patience and endurance. There are a lot of things to pray for when a Christian friend is suffering. And I'm not minimizing any of those this morning, I know there are several families in our church that are in unusually, unusually difficult seasons of life. I mean, breathtakingly difficult. You hear the story and you go, oh my. We should pray for those things. We should give those things to God. We should commit them to him. We should pray for those people. And we can pray that that trial ends. We pray that God would do a miracle in it. We pray that that relationship would get reconciled. We pray for this and that. And yet we also pray in the midst of it, if we model Paul, for endurance. For as long as God sees fit to assign them this specific suffering. And not just any kind of endurance. Not just, not just dry patience. Not cold endurance, but joy. Patience with joy, he says. Pray for each other's joy. Pray more that so-and-so, your friend, your coworker, your Christian coworker, would be satisfied in Christ and joyful in him. One more thing. Paul here keeps circling back to redemption. The fifth thing is that he keeps circling back to redemption, and we should too. 
He gives us four phrases here in verses 12 to 14. He qualified us to share in the inheritance of saints in light. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Remember, Paul began this prayer, last week we saw it, with thanks to God for the Colossians, for their faith, for their gospel growth, for their love for each other. And now he ends on a similar theme. Again, he comes back to thankfulness for their salvation. Thankfulness for the gospel. Thankfulness for what Christ did and how grace came to them and us and what the glorious results are. Oh man, he never seems to get tired thanking God for salvation, but instead prays elaborate, thoughtful, descriptive prayers of thanks for their salvation. He doesn't just say, thank God for forgiveness. It's like he can't mention the theme of forgiveness without starting a little tornado of praise words, of doctrinal praise. He circles about it five times in his thinking, thinking through what he did and how he didn't deserve it and what his grace means now. Notice these things in verses 12 to 14 mainly are the results of the gospel. He qualified us to share in the inheritance now. We're saints now. We're in light now. We used to be in the domain of darkness, but he's transferred us. We're new citizens of the heavenly kingdom, and Christ is our king. How? How did all this happen? Then he tells us how, that last phrase. It's through his redemption. He bought us. He purchased us. He ransomed us. He rescued us. He gave us forgiveness. That's our hope. Jesus died in our place to take the wrath of God that we deserved. And through faith and faith alone and nothing we can do to earn it, we receive the righteousness of Christ. And we're forgiven, reconciled to God. Inheritors of the age to come. This is what we call the gospel as Christians, that the hope, the answer to the problem, the problem of a guilty conscience, the problem of restlessness, the problem of sin and judgment, the answer is not in us, but it's outside us in Christ and his finished work. The answer is not improvement, but forgiveness and redemption. He simply bought us and he owns us and he's bought us to have, to keep, and to save, to restore. Well, today we're praying these things, the things of Colossians 1 for all of us. I'm encouraging these themes for, for our prayers as a family for our prayers in private with our Bible and the Holy Spirit alone, for the prayers of our community groups. Let these phrases shape us. In particular, this morning, we're praying for those who are being baptized, thanking God for his work of grace in their lives. We have an immediate application for what we're seeing from Paul here in Colossians 1. As they're being baptized, we get to thank God for what he's done in our hearts as Christians, what he's done in their hearts and lives as Christians. We're getting to see a picture of what he's done 
and who he is and what the story is. And we're asking God this morning for more, for more and more. We're, we're this morning getting an opportunity to immediately follow in Paul's footsteps here to thank God for where they are and what he's given and to boldly ask for incredibly more. So perhaps you'll leave Colossians 1 open in your lap as you see these folks being baptized in just a bit. And you'll pray these phrases. You'll pray they walk worthy. You'll pray for fruit, gospel fruit. You'll pray that God brings them to himself one day. He keeps them and they have patience and endurance and joy. Baptism is a picture, really, of what Paul describes in these closing verses we looked at this morning, verses 12 to 14. It's an identification with that redemption, the redemption of Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's a picture of burial and resurrection. Romans 6 talks about that. Don't you know that all who've been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? They identify with the work of Christ on that glorious gospel weekend where he died and was buried and was raised. It's a picture also of washing. Water washes, right? It washes the skin. It cleanses. Well, this isn't special water. It's just normal water. In fact, I hear it's a little bit cool this morning. Yikes. So this water doesn't do any kind of spiritual cleansing itself, but it pictures for us. In fact, it's one of the few pictures God's given us, so it's an important thing. He's given us this picture of the cleansing that his blood does on our behalf, in our hearts, of our souls. And it's also a picture of our own spiritual death and resurrection where that transfer out of darkness and into light is pictured in a, in a burial and resurrection. New life has already happened in those who are being baptized, but they want to demonstrate that to you, both through their words, and they'll keep doing that through their words, their testimony, and their lives, but also today, specifically through this picture of baptism. It's a public testimony to the world. They're identifying with Christ and his church. So it's a unique opportunity for us to partner with them and pray for them as they publicly identify with Christ and with our church.